On December 31st, 1993, the president of Mexico, Carlos Salinas de Gortari, gathered with family and friends at a luxury resort in Oaxaca. He and his guests sipped glasses of expensive champagne as the countdown to midnight began. Salinas wasn't just celebrating the new year. He was also marking a big political victory. At the stroke of midnight, his new trade agreement with the United States and Canada would go into effect. It was known as NAFTA. Happy 1994! Most modern Mexican presidents had been lawyers, but Salinas, he was an economist, educated at Harvard. And like many economists at the time, he imagined a future in which the world was more and more interconnected. NAFTA was a big step towards this vision of globalization. If Mexico prospers, the U.S. and Canada will prosper. That is why this is not a win-lose solution, but a win-win-win situation for the three countries in the northern part of the American continent. The party continued into the early hours of the morning. But at around 2 a.m., a military aide stepped onto the terrace and handed Salinas a note. The Secretary of Defense was on the phone, and the news was urgent. As most of Mexico was ringing in the new year, thousands of rebels with machetes and guns had taken over San Cristobal de las Casas, a town in the southeastern state of Chiapas. They called themselves the Zapatista Army of National Liberation, or the EZLN. They had occupied government buildings, freed prisoners, and even captured a local radio station. Here's Moises Zuniga. He was in San Cristobal that night. Yo recuerdo que en la madrugada, como a la una, supongo, se escuchó que habían. I remember that in the early morning, about 1 a.m., I guess, we heard that there was a demonstration of Indians in the center, but they said that they were wearing balaclavas and that they were carrying machetes. It was not really known what was going on, if they were violent groups that were going to harm society. That's when we turned on the radio. A scratchy broadcast repeated the same message over and over. It said, in part, We are a product of 500 years of struggle. First against slavery, then during the War of Independence against Spain, led by insurgents, then to avoid being absorbed by North American imperialism. But today we say, ya basta, enough is enough. The rebels wore face masks to hide their identities, but their goal was no mystery. The broadcast continued. Therefore, and in accordance with this declaration of war, we call on our Zapatista military with the following orders to advance to the capital of the country and defeat the Mexican army. From Interval Presents and Awfully Nice, this is The Last Resort. I'm Shoot Descott. Episode 7, People of the Sun.
At the heart of the CalExit idea is a simple promise that California will be better off on its own. But somewhat paradoxically, Marcus and Lewis also expect the relationship between California and the U.S. to remain super close. Here's Marcus. So he said, you'll have California citizenship and you'll retain your American citizenship. If you want to renounce your American citizenship, that's on you. But we will never make that a requirement to join California. In Marcus and Lewis's ideal version of CalExit, California would retain many of the benefits of being a part of the United States. Californians would stop paying federal taxes, but could still collect Social Security. The U.S. military would continue to own and operate bases in California and take possession of their nuclear weapons. If you look at the military bases in California, it's not that much land. It really isn't. They could keep them, and they could pay us money to keep it here, and they could keep the nukes there. And finally, the California and U.S. economies would remain closely linked. Here's Louis Marinelli. If you look at the history of the United States over the last several decades, they've been very favorable towards things like free trade in North America. And so there's no reason for us to expect that just because it's an arbitrarily now international border, that all of a sudden the trade stops, the food stops. If all this were true, CalExit does seem like a win-win situation for Californians. More local control, but with a lot of support and protection from the U.S. Still, some experts are skeptical that it would work out that way. Here's Stephen Marsh, author of The Next Civil War. Why would the United States government pay pensions to Californians when it's not raising tax revenues on California citizens? I mean, it's too, this is what I mean by they're not serious. That's not a serious proposal. So the problem with this debate, of course, is that it's all hypothetical. So today, instead of speaking in hypotheticals, we're going to tell you the story of a place right next door to California where people fought for their autonomy and actually won. As many of you are aware, there's a revolution happening in southeast Mexico, in Chiapas, a state rich in resources but poor in standard of living. There are those who will no longer accept the poverty that the current system offers them. These people are known as the Zapatistas. On January 1st, 1994, a revolutionary group known as the Zapatistas seized control of large portions of the Mexican state of Chiapas. They pledged to transform the way the region was governed. Nearly 30 years later, much of Chiapas is still under Zapatista control, operating independently from the Mexican government. It's a model that Marcus Ruiz Evans says is a direct inspiration. I have personally always supported the Zapatistas. Their movement is similar to the CalExit movement in a couple regards. California's at the edge of America. We are the furthest away from the capitals can be. We are a markedly different culture than the rest of Americans. And we too have our resources sucked out in order to benefit America while we don't really see the benefits of that. Is it possible for California and the U.S. to remain close allies after CalExit? Can California be independent and still get the benefits of being part of the United States? Or is that all just too good to be true? The story of Chiapas gives us insight on the question, what's it actually like to live in the shadow of a huge country that you just declared independence from? Is it a story of friendly neighbors or something else? To get started, we need to give you a little bit of background. 
Who exactly are the Zapatistas, and why did they rise up against the Mexican government back in 1994? To do that story justice would require an entire podcast of its own. But for this episode, what's important to know is that Mexico has been heavily shaped by colonization. The Spanish began settling the area over 500 years ago, searching for gold and spreading Catholicism. And just like in the United States, these colonists subjugated and displaced the millions of indigenous people who originally inhabited these lands. By the late 1800s, Mexico was living under a dictator named Porfirio Diaz. Diaz succeeded in growing the Mexican economy, but he did so in part by confiscating land from poor indigenous farmers and turning it over to allies and foreign investors. The theft of their lands created profound suffering amongst Mexico's indigenous people. For centuries, they had farmed the land communally. Now, without lands of their own, many had no choice but to labor on plantations under often brutal conditions. The Diaz regime collapsed in 1910, triggering what's known as the Mexican Revolution. Put simply, it was a civil war with multiple factions battling for control of the country for over a decade. One of the leaders who rose to power during this time was a farmer named Emiliano Zapata. You! Yes, my president. What is your name? Emiliano Zapata. Out of the earth that shook with a cry, conquistadores, comes Zapata, the Robin Hood of Mexico. The man with a circle around his name, a machete in his hand, fire in his blood, taking by storm and holding by fury. And where he rode, they conquered. What you're hearing is a trailer for an old Hollywood film called Viva Zapata. It stars Marlon Brando in skin-darkening makeup as Mexican folk hero Emiliano Zapata. Here's Alex Kaznabish, author of Zapatistas, Rebellion from the Grassroots to the Global. Emiliano Zapata is still regarded as the most authentic, most untarnished, purest hero of the Mexican Revolution. He grew up to be essentially of the Mexican version of a cowboy, right? Rode horses, all that kind of stuff, very dashing. But he also grew up with a keen sense of justice and seeing the incredible injustice in early 20th century Mexico in the lead up to the revolution. Zapata represented the poor, mostly indigenous farmers of southern Mexico, and his primary goal was to take land back from the rich and return it to the peasants who had originally owned it. In 1917, Zapata achieved his biggest victory. Article 27. Mexico enacted a new constitution, and one of its provisions, Article 27, included many of Zapata's ideas. Article 27 essentially stipulates land reform. So the redistribution of land that's been left idle, that's owned by large landowners, but critically, it allows for land to be collectively owned. It's a huge victory. Article 27 made a huge difference in the lives of poor farmers, especially native people. By 1988, three million Mexican families lived and worked on communal lands made possible by Article 27. Then came President Carlos Salinas. In 1991, Salinas called for the end of Article 27's land protections. This meant that the communal lands on which millions of native people had been living would be divided up and sold off. 
the Mexican Congress quickly approved his proposal. Why would Salinas do this? By the 1980s, debt crisis has hit Mexico. Uh, Mexico is uh, defaulted on its IMF loans. And by the 90s, as NAFTA is under negotiation, the North American Free Trade Agreement, all the capitalized interests behind NAFTA are saying, you know, you cannot have an article that essentially stipulates that property, that land is subject to appropriation and redistribution. So in order to play ball, Salinas has to essentially remove Article 27 from the Mexican Constitution. And this is arguably the spark that lights the fuse. Salinas saw NAFTA as good business for his country. But as one activist told the New York Times, quote, the free trade agreement is a death certificate for the Indian peoples of Mexico, unquote. Which brings us back to the Zapatistas. Inspired by the example of Emiliano Zapata, they rose up and took the land back. There were many dead in the market. The Zapatistas went into the houses of the mestizos in the center of Ocosingo, and the army went in after them and also mowed down the mestizos, the ladinos, if that's what you can call them. On January 1st, 1994, Zapatista rebels took hold of San Cristobal de las Casas and several other towns in Chiapas. The response from President Salinas was quick and brutal. The army invaded, hunting down rebel fighters and forcing them back into the surrounding mountains. Here's Moises Zuniga again. That afternoon, the afternoon of the 1st of January, they left. We only saw the Zapatistas walking towards the mountains in the south. I felt a strangeness and a kind of respect because they looked very small physically. Poor, like little chilitas made of cloth. You could see that everything was self-made. The rambos of the Mexican army would come down with two or three machine guns. The soldiers were physically much bigger. You could see that not all of them were from Chiapas. You could see a lot of soldiers from the north of Mexico. The EZLN was mostly local indigenous farmers and laborers. They were far outmatched by the Mexican army. But Moises could see that the rebels had something the military didn't, something to fight for. Their very existence was on the line. You could hear in the words of the rebels' radio transmission. We call on all our brothers to join this call as the only way to avoid starving in the face of the insatiable ambition of a dictatorship of more than 70 years. Here's Moises Zuniga. More than anything, I heard a lot of determination and a lot of reason in their words. I knew they were right because I had seen the poverty. The army was never able to stop the uprising in Chiapas. Finally, after years of fighting, they gave in. Mexico passed a law stating that, quote, indigenous peoples could practice autonomy within the framework of a united nation. The Zapatistas had won.
Well, the first time I went to Chiapas is um, in 1997. After a long, long bus ride, uh, we came into um, San Cristobal de las Casas. And San Cristobal is a town right before you really go into the jungle. This is Marta Gonzalez. She's an activist and author and the lead singer of the Los Angeles rock band Quetzal. And uh, I remember coming in and, and it was a beautiful green, luscious everywhere. It's just beautiful. It was a little foggy. The sun hadn't really come out yet. There were a lot of zapatistas everywhere. And we were met at the kind of like the very top of that hill because our stuff was going to be searched. They wanted to make sure we didn't have any guns and any alcohol or drugs. And because By the late 1990s, the story of the Zapatistas was known around the world. The rock band Rage Against the Machine wrote multiple songs about the uprising. One of them, People of the Sun, was nominated for a Grammy in 1998. Marta was one of those who traveled to Chiapas to see how the uprising was working in practice and to learn how she might replicate EZLN tactics back home. The idea was not that you can become Zapatista. It was more about what can you do from your own trenches. And so that was completely empowering. And I think we've been trying to live that philosophy ever since. The Zapatistas had enacted a system that looked really different from what had come before it. It was a radical form of democracy with most big decisions made directly by the people. They also declared what they called the women's revolutionary law. So one of their laws is that, you know, a woman has a right to join the army if she so wishes to. Uh, a woman also has a right to have as many kids or no children if she so wishes. Most importantly, the Zapatistas took steps to protect the cultures and languages of Native people, something that the Mexican government had tried for generations to eliminate. The Mexican government has always espoused that Folks are, are Mexicanos, right? And the implication here is that the indigenous are extinct, that they are dead, and that we now live in a post-indigenous world. Well, that's not true. The Zapatistas, the value systems that they set have everything to do with their histories, in preserving their histories, preserving their languages, their way of life, their connection to the land. And this is what they decided to focus on. In many ways, the EZLN delivered on their promises. They restored land to the citizens of the regions they liberated. They've tried to build a more inclusive and just society, and they stood up for native rights. But there has remained one big obstacle to the Zapatistas' success, Mexico. Here's Alex Kasnabish again. The Mexican government is an entirely duplicitous and insincere partner. And it's really clear from the beginning that they are not the ones entirely pulling the strings either. There's this infamous memo that gets released by the Chase Manhattan Bank that says the Mexican government must demonstrate territorial integrity and control in Chiapas. What they're saying is you have to crack down and destroy this uh, to demonstrate that you are open for business. The army constructed military bases in Zapatista territory, and the Mexican government provides funding to paramilitary groups that routinely attack Zapatista supporters. Meanwhile, the Mexican government has failed to provide basic services to the residents of Chiapas who are still Mexican citizens. Almost 20% of Chiapas is illiterate, access to healthcare is limited, 
and 90% of indigenous communities do not have running water in their homes. The reasons why are pretty clear. The Zapatista uprising was a huge political embarrassment to the government. It undermined confidence in Mexico, just as it was trying to pitch itself to foreign investors, and the value of the peso plummeted. In short, it destabilized Mexico and humiliated its leaders, which left them in no mood to help the people of Chiapas. So what does the story of the Zapatistas tell us about CalExit? What kind of relationship can California expect with the United States after it declares independence? Here's Stephen Marsh. He thinks the relationship is going to be, well, whatever the U.S. wants it to be. The state that you're seceding from has to agree to it. The Americans would have all the power, right? Like, they could just say, actually, we're not going to pay you anything ever. And what would California be able to do? Nothing. Nothing. If the U.S. decides to shut off the internet in California, it can, right? All the cards are in one hand here. In Chiapas, citizens are still reliant on the Mexican government for many social services. California is kind of in the same boat. It has huge dependencies on the U.S. Trade, security, water, infrastructure. In a dispute, California could turn to the United Nations, But the U.S. holds veto power over important votes, including California's ability to join the U.N. at all. Americans tend to think, well, who cares about the U.N.? But, like, if you don't have U.N. recognition, then you don't have IP addresses. Your money is no good. Uh, If you want to have airplanes land in your airports, you need the U.N. The power imbalance would get worse if, as Marcus has suggested, California gives its nuclear weapons back to the United States. If it was America said, well, we're going to take our nukes, people here would probably say, fine, go. We don't want them here anyways. No, we don't think there will be a physical threat from America because we are peacefully and legally seceding. Why would America try to conquer us when they just voted us out? A majority of their Congress just said, get out. In the early 1990s, just as NAFTA was trying to unite North America, the former Soviet Union was collapsing. As the nation split into smaller countries, Ukraine agreed to turn over its nukes to Russia in exchange for security guarantees. I don't have to tell you where that decision led them. Russia unleashing an assault on Ukraine from multiple directions. Vladimir Putin declared that Russia would use all weapons systems available to us to defend the country. He wants to, in fact, reestablish the former Soviet Union. The narrative in Ukraine publicly is, we had the world's third largest nuclear arsenal, we gave it up for this signed piece of paper, and look what happened. All to say, it seems like there are a lot of ways the relationship between California and the U.S. could go wrong after Cal exit. But beyond all of that, Stephen Marsh doesn't understand why Marcus and Lewis would want to remain so close to the U.S. anyway. I mean, it, it's a strange thing to want to have it both ways. I mean, either you are a California and not an American, or you're an American, right? And as you can see from talking to the leading California separatist who imagines double identity papers for everyone, you may not hate America quite as much as it's required to actually want to secede. Which brings us to a really important distinction between Cal Exit and the Zapatistas. For Marcus and Lewis, 
CalExit is a legal argument, a moral argument, and an economic argument. They believe California would be better off on its own. But as Moises noticed back on January 1st, 1994, the Zapatistas were fighting for something way different, for survival. If there's anything I've learned from this podcast, it's that seceding from a country is a big deal. It's gonna involve some people getting hurt. So the question for Marcus and Lewis is, are Californians really angry enough at the US to endure all the sacrifice that CalExit is probably gonna require? Like, are you really willing to say you're not an American? Or do you just hate the government? Which of course is like, you know, as American as apple pie. There's one more reason for Californians to worry about their future relationship with the United States. The era of globalization, the driving force behind NAFTA, may be coming to an end. In a few moments, I will sign the North American Free Trade Act into law. NAFTA will tear down trade barriers between our three nations. On December 8th, 1993, U.S. President Bill Clinton held a ceremony to celebrate the ratification of NAFTA. We cannot stop global change. We can only harness the energy to our benefit. Now we must recognize that the only way for a wealthy nation to grow richer is to export. That, my fellow Americans, is the decision the Congress made when they voted to ratify NAFTA. But things didn't go according to plan. Mexico's economic crisis deepened today with stocks dropping sharply and the peso still under fire. The crisis has grown despite $10 billion in aid from Mexico's partners in NAFTA. After NAFTA, the world's economies became more and more connected. But globalization was deeply destabilizing for working class people, not just in Mexico, but around the world. Here's Alex Kasnabish again. So it's the idea that you can actually make your cost of production that much cheaper by sourcing it somewhere else. What happens if we can source our labor offshore where they don't have labor rights? If I have to deal with environmental restrictions in the United States, maybe Haiti won't care about them to the same degree. I think it's quite accurate to think of it as a race to the bottom in terms of social standards, environmental standards, labor standards. This was never a model that was meant to actually improve social conditions of life for the world's majorities. Whole industries were outsourced from one country to another. Unions were gutted, and changing economic prospects unleashed massive immigration. This economic turmoil is hardest on Mexico's population, and officials worry there will now be a sudden increase in Mexican migration to the United States. By 2016, the backlash was well underway. NAFTA was perhaps the worst trade deal ever made. The United States racked up trade deficits totaling more than $2 trillion. Politicians like Donald Trump were no longer promising a more integrated world. They were promising the opposite. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs, will be made to benefit American workers and American families. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. 
Maybe back in the 90s, California could have expected a warm welcome into the global economy after CalExit. But today, the world looks a lot different. Countries are shutting their borders, enacting trade barriers, restricting immigration. Today, we're in an era of nationalism, or put another way, the era of anti-globalization. I am the president of anti-globalization movement in Russia. Uh, we support the working class. This is a economic, this is a politics, and uh, this is a humanitarian uh, relationships. Next time on our season finale, we speak to Alexander Yonov, president of the anti-globalization movement of Russia. Yonov helped Louis Marinelli open the California embassy in Moscow, triggering a massive scandal that crippled the CalExit movement back in 2017. Today, in 2022, Marcus Ruiz Evans is trying to rebuild. But the story of CalExit, Russia, and Louis Marinelli is far from over. It is vitally important for millions of rational, normal people living in California that the state as we know it never becomes an independent country. Independence would unbind California from the only thing that has kept it from completely deteriorating into a third world communist state. That one thing is the United States Constitution. Can Cal Exit recover? Will America have a national divorce? And what do we need to do to save the United States? That's all coming up on The Last Resort. The Last Resort is an Interval Presents original production from Awfully Nice. From Interval Presents, the executive producers are Alan Coy and Jake Kleinberg. Executive producers from Awfully Nice are Jesse Burton and Katie Hodges. Written and produced by Jesse Burton and Dana Balut. Associate producer is Suzanne Gaber. Project management by Kadi Kamakate. Editing, sound design, and mix by Nick Cipriano and Kiana McClellan of Bang Audio Post. Original music by my boy Matawai Yuhi and me, Shutezkat. Theme song by me, Shutezkat, and Sweet Sound. Fact checking by Lauren Vespoli. Script consultation by William Bauer. English language dubbing by Esteban Silva. Operations lead is Sarah Yu. Business development lead is Shefi Elenswig. And marketing lead is Samara Still. Special thanks to Ulysses Escamilla Haro. I'm your host, Shutezkat. For a full list of the sources used in this episode, please check the show notes. Make sure to follow, rate, and review The Last Resort on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. I run with the wolves, we run through the woods, we run where we won't.